0: It's Monday, February 26th, 2024, from Peach Fish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Peska, A funding bill that could save Ukraine from the actual invasion that the Russians literally did perpetrate installed in the House. The problem? A figurative invasion of migrants at the U.S. border. These two issues are only connected by the through line of Republican intransigence but I will allow that it is a common political tactic to leverage a lesser concern against a greater one when your political opponent's calculation has the severity of each concern switched. So I won't say good governance, but actually there is a little game theory going on. Of course, there was a little game theory going on when the Atlanta Falcons were up 28-3 to against the Patriots in the Super Bowl. The theory was just a stupid one. But at least we can all agree that the quasi stalemate that we're experiencing over Ukraine funding is just a better situation than the perpetual games of chicken that characterized Congress back in January. Remember that? If not, here's CNN's Jen Sullivan with a reminder. Time is running out for Congress to pass a spending bill and avoid a partial government shutdown. Lawmakers have until midnight Friday to pass a deal. And the same thing played out in September, with the battle lines being frustratingly familiar as WGN reported. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer wrote a letter today saying they'd hope to have legislation ready this weekend. He's blaming House Republicans for the delay. Well, at least that nonsense is in the past and what, what, what? Those pieces of tape were from today, this weekend, today and this weekend? We're doing this again? It can't be. But it is. It is. Or it isn't, and there won't be a shutdown. But who knows, and really I speak for most of my fellow Americans when I ask, who cares? Yes, of course, if there is a shutdown, we'll care. But these developments just conspire to make Congress the worst institution in American public life. The worst. The DMV is better than Congress. The Catholic Church I mean, they still run a good youth basketball league. Telemarketers. I mean, they do offer employment opportunities for the occasional New Orleans-based street magician. But Congress, the U.S. Congress, is just awful. This story is awful. Their governing is awful. No one likes it. No one doesn't hate it. Even whoever, quote, wins the shutdown or gets their bills passed, they still hate it. They still hated what they had to go through. There are those who say, aha, and that's just what conservatives want. They want for you to hate government. No, that's not it. They at least want you to hate them less than they do their opponents. They're not even achieving that. The whole idea of the grand conservative game plan to devalue the worth of governance, that is what we call a retcon. It is not true. It's what you say during a disaster to pick up a couple of shards of broken wood around you and say, oh no, this, this part I meant. It makes the tiresome maniacs seem a little more possessed of direction than they really are. The shutdown caucus, by the way, they never win. They never win. Sometimes they actually, you know, in years past, they have got their shutdown. That was worse for them than when they didn't get their shutdown. There is nothing else that I pay this much attention to that squanders my efforts more with meaninglessness. And I say that as a fan of the New York Jets. Congress is the worst spectacle in public life. And worse than that, it's currently in reruns. On the show today, speaking of TV, Shane Gillis didn't bomb on SNL, but he did not kill either. So that's kind of good for the death toll, bad for stand-up, but not nearly as bad as some would have you believe the state of stand-up on award shows, on SNL. I will give you the one secret element of success. But first, when the Biden administration foreign policy experts took over from their predecessors, they told the world and themselves, the adults are back. Things seemed to be going well for a while, and then they very much didn't. Alexander Ward is out with a new book, The Internationalists, The Fight to Restore American Foreign Policy After Trump. We will talk about Joe Biden's approach to the numerous conflict zones around the planet. Alexander Ward up next. Evocative of David Halberstam's The Best and the Brightest, a new book titled The Internationalist, The Fight to Restore American Foreign Policy After Trump is out. It's written by Alexander Ward. It is a history, a recent history, but you should know that Ward is the national security reporter and anchor of Politico's national security daily newsletter, which means he has his fingers and keeps very much abreast and up to date of all the developments, which is important since in the world and certainly the Biden administration. Things change suddenly and sometimes terribly. We're going to talk about the state of foreign affairs through the prism of the White House with Mr. Ward. Welcome to the gist. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So I'm not saying that when you were reporting the book, which is essentially uh, during Biden's first couple of years, things were stable. But they do seem much more stable much less bloody, much less chaotic than they are now. And we're talking about a time of the Afghanistan withdrawal and the surprise w- invasion of uh, Ukraine by Russia. Does it seem that way to you? Um,
1: yes and no. I mean, I think that's more dramatic with Israel-Hamas, right? But there's no question that the withdrawal from Afghanistan was chaotic, deadly. We'd lost 13 service members. It was awful for the people of, of Afghanistan. We've Still left a lot of American allies, um, you know, that, that are enough Guest in back there. Uh, of course, Russia's invasion of Ukraine was bloody and brutal. So I would just say that there's there's been sort of an, uh, an increase in what's been going on. But I wouldn't yeah. necessarily say it's more dangerous, but it's certainly more out of control for Team Biden than it was uh, even then.
0: Right. So, what I was thinking of, you're right. Like, if we just look at the death toll, of course, it's going to be higher in the early days of the uh, Russia Ukraine invasion than in the uh, maybe last year when um, uh, sort of a deadlock not uh, not a not a death free deadlock, but a deadlock has taken hold. I think what I mean is, I'm thinking of the Trump or the Trump. Um, acolyte criticism of the world on fire. And I think this is an unfair criticism, but it does seem more on fire now. And a lot of that is what we pay attention to. I don't have to tell you that as this war in in, uh, Gaza is grinding on and killing people, compared to the war in the Tigray region of Ethiopia, it's but a fraction of the death toll. But what does the United States and what do Americans and probably what does the Biden White House pay attention to much more to the war in Gaza than some of these other Hotspots in the world, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, look, if you're looking at what really matters to the United States, right, in terms of region, it's going to be uh, Europe 1, Asia 2, Middle East 2.5 or 3. Uh, or as much as the US always wants to push the Middle East to the side, it always seems to, to come roaring back. Um, in the Trump years, as you alluded, there was chaos and there was dysfunction, but there wasn't necessarily... This outbreak of war, we should note, of course, that Russia had was still invading Ukraine at the time. But Russian troops did not pull out during the Trump years. Um, no, there was not a massive Israel-Hamas flare-up, but there were tensions with uh, Iran. lest we less we forget, there was genuine concern and threats of nuclear war with North Korea. Like it wasn't that it was necessarily, uh, you know, a less tense time. It may have been a less deadlier time. Uh, which is leading to that Trump argument of, look, I'm the guy who can prevent World War III, right? Yeah. When Biden comes in, World War III breaks out. So that's why I feel, I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but if we're thinking about foreign policy's role in the 2024 election, foreign policy rarely matters. But I do think in the sort of meta sense, this is the don't start World War III election, right? Wh- which president's going to keep us safer in this time of chaos the best that's going to matter to voters?
0: Right. Um, let's take Ukraine. You do a lot of uh, very good reporting there, and the headline for me from the book was Biden and Zelensky not best of bros as we might have thought.
1: No question. I mean, I think we generally knew that there. You know, Zelensky was skeptical of the, of the invasion going to happen. Uh, that he was angry with the U.S. about saying an invasion was going to happen, and but. I was surprised at how rancorous that relationship was. Um, genuine screaming matches uh, on the phone. Uh, genuine concern from Biden being like, dude, defend your Kiev, defend your city, mobilize people, what are you doing? Um, and, and so, it, of course, it, it was nasty. Like, it was truly nasty. Uh, meanwhile, the US is out there telling the world and the allies, like, here's what's gonna happen, here's the intelligence. It, there was some skepticism there, but general acceptance with Ukraine, it was like full on, this isn't happening. Now, nothing sharpens the mind more like getting your country invaded. So the moment, you know, the Russian troops come over the border, so it's like, great, where's my money? Where's my weapons? Uh, and that that changed. And, of course, now you can still sense a tone of rancor when the U.S. isn't sending stuff Keefe's way. But you're right. Sure, I think because my- their
0: lives I- depend on it. I'd have
1: at least rancor. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so I think you're right. Like, one of the newsier points in this book is I think is as deep a chronicle as you'll find of just how – Uh, intensely angry Biden and Zelensky were at each other?
0: Um, So I interviewed Yaroslav Trofimov, who's the chief foreign affairs correspondent of the journal, and he's Ukrainian, and he wrote a book about Ukraine. It doesn't contradict what you report, but you you actually emphasize different um, time periods during the war. Beforehand, Zelensky, for a lot of reasons that you and he get into, and also the Ukrainian establishment and most of the European establishment, thought it very unlikely that Putin would invade. And the Americans were certainly more, uh, at least entertaining that um, possibility privately publicly, also from your reporting. Then when the invasion happened, there was a shift and this was mostly expressed on the European side. But Trofimov has a number of instances where Americans communicated to Ukrainians and communicated internally. Well, that's it. The war is over. Like, let's start talking about how best to surrender, give up, uh, get whatever you can from this from this inevitable onslaught. How much did you find that that was the stance of the uh, the Biden administration? They wanted the Ukrainians to fight, but did they really think that, you know, maybe you could hold the Russians off for a couple of days, but not a couple of months or years?
1: I mean, look, there was intelligence suggesting, and this is something that General Mark Milley briefed to people um, when he was the Joint Chiefs Chair, uh, that Kiev could hold for 72 hours. That it would—that That's how long it would take for Russia to to, to go in. Now, that wasn't the only thing intelligence was showing. There was sort of a breadth, but that was a concern and something that Milly mentioned to people. So, look, if you think Ukraine is effectively going to fall in three days, um, you probably don't have that much optimism about what's to come. The defense of Kiev, I, I think, surprised most people, um, maybe even those in Kiev, that <laughs> um, how well they did. And the Russians kind of believe that they would be greeted as liberators, right? They came in, and uh, things would kind of go their way. They faced a staunch defense, they faced a population that did not want them there. Um, and of course, the, the the troops were already demoralized, because they were waiting on that Ukrainian border for months, and et cetera. Et cetera. So uh, yeah, it, it was not the greatest planned military operation ever. But there truly was this um, sense that Ukraine probably couldn't hold out. Yeah. Uh, but but they but they did and they're, and they're still doing okay although we should not ignore the fact that the russians have taken more territory from ukraine uh because of this invasion now the ukrainians have taken some back but they now have captured more of the country than than before february of 2022
0: yes so i would say from what i understand i don't think the ukrainians were surprised or at least i i don't know if that's the uh i don't know if that's the gauge i think that they were Unbelievably committed to their defense in a way that the Americans and the rest of the West couldn't really understand. And they all, or at least the uh, ones I've talked to and seen interviewed, all said, we're definitely going to fight to the death, and there's no question about it. And in many cases, they did. And this reflects a lot of what goes on in foreign policy, which is the assumption that other countries are going to behave essentially like the United States does. Do you, did you find the Biden administration falling into that trap, constantly being surprised that these other countries have entirely different calculations than we as Americans would?
1: Well, sure. Although I will say I think the lesson of that period is the U.S. thought that the Afghan government would fight to protect Kabul and it yeah. didn't. Yeah. And the U.S. believed that Ukraine would fight but wouldn't be successful. And they were. Right. So one thing that we've learned from this period is that U.S. intelligence or U.S. assessments are awful at understanding the will of troops. Uh, we, you know, we, we have a good sense of the materials they have, the training they've received. Uh, you know, their their ability to conduct certain operations. We don't know what's in their heart. Now, maybe that's impossible to do um, on an intelligence metric. But I do know that CIA Director Bill Burns, that's something he's trying to work on, because that's two conflicts in a row. We didn't really nail that. I yeah. think the US, of course, deserves credit on the intelligence of Ukraine. They figured out the invasion was coming, but they didn't really get a sense of just how strongly and how adequately the Ukrainians would pull this off.
0: What about the current domestic situation that is giving the administration the most headaches, the crisis at the border? This has an international origin, which are the continuously and I think shockingly deteriorating conditions in several Central American countries. This seems to have caught them a bit flat-footed. Could it be that they looked at their predecessors, the Trump administration, and they said, these guys are over-the-top, medieval, cruel, have bad solutions, demagogue this issue, and looked at the root causes, which they're really into looking at, and put them on the back burner, dismissed them, said that it wasn't as important as other areas of the world where we think American intervention can affect outcomes, just because the Trump administration treated it as sort of a caricature of an actual problem?
1: I I can't say I'm an expert on the border, Uh, but I can say two things. One is it would not surprise me that the Biden team wants to adopt elements of, like, Trumpism and populism without seeming like they are. And so how, when you do that at the border, they're worried about, you know, Congress matters here, progressives and others going, wait a minute, that's, that's too Trumpy, don't do it. And so then they're just kind of maybe not five footed, but stuck. Um, the other thing is, you know, as part of this book, I try to generally outline a Biden doctrine. And, and to your point, this team care deeply about the defense of democracies and democracy and centralizing it, those kinds of issues, and putting things to the side that they felt that really, they that didn't matter. Although they weren't dealing with them, but not prioritizing them. And that includes the border, that includes North Korea, oddly enough, um, that includes generally African politics, etc, uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So there was this notion of if we rebuild, we got to focus on rebuilding uh, trust with allies, we've got to refocus on confronting Russia. We've got to refocus on competing with China. We've got to focus on tackling climate change. And of course, COVID, lest we forget uh, mm-hmm. when they came in, when all that was happening. So all of these other issues were, were to the side and just not as important to them. And I think what part of what we're seeing is a lot of that neglect, and this includes Israel, Hamas, I should note, has come back to roost because while they were dealing with them, they weren't prioritizing them and putting as much resources into alleviating the alleviating some of these issues.
0: A foreign policy action that the Trump administration took that I'm fairly confident the Biden administration wouldn't have was the targeted killing of Qasem Soleimani. Do you think in retrospect, do do your sources within the Biden administration still maintain that that was a mistake? Do they point to anything that uh, any blowback that incurred? Uh, Do they not acknowledge or do they acknowledge that there was something gained by eliminating such an important figure in the iranian military structure
1: i think they hold two thoughts one is they're very glad that guy is gone and there's no question that the you know irgc could force is a weaker entity without him there but they also go okay but what did it do like if, if the goal was to deter Iranian aggression or send a real strong signal of, look, if you cross the line, these are the kinds of people we'll kill. It didn't do it. Now, you, of course, you could blame Biden administration's own actions on that, but that's generally how they feel. Because lest we forget, even after Soleimani was killed, there were attacks on the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad. Um, there were other attacks in the region on U.S. troops. It's not like the Iranians stopped, but there's no question that Tehran was like, oh, wait a minute. That's further than they've gone. That's a new one. The one one thing I would mention is Trump was oddly enough calculating when it came to the Middle East. Let's not. There was a moment where Iran downed a U.S. unmanned drone, and you had Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and National Security Advisor John Bolton say, "You now need to kill roughly around 150 Iranians in retaliation." Trump said, "No, that's not proportional. I'm not doing it." Bolton subsequently called that the worst decision he'd ever seen a president make. Unless he was, of course, on the bot and the Bush administration during Iraq. But anyway, um, like. Trump, Trump was somewhat discerning. He he calculated, he made certain thoughts. And in his mind, the Iranians were being so provocative uh, and so aggressive that it was worth taking out one of their big guys, but not necessarily going all out and bombing Iran as some of his administration wanted.
0: So Trump always points to the fact that during his administration, there weren't as many conflagrations, I suppose, as happened during the Biden administration. Is there any? Case to be made that that was a result of something other than luck? I mean, you just pointed to one example where he didn't do what at least John Bolton and his most uh, bellicose advisors had advised him to do. Well,
1: I mean, I don't necessarily—part of it is luck. I mean, look, when when Trump moved the embassy to Jerusalem, you know, it was not as apocalyptic as everyone predicted it would be. Right, right. But, and I'm
0: thinking the same thing with Soleimani, and I'm thinking the same thing with uh, withdrawing from the uh, Iranian um, nuclear deal. All of these things that were painted at the time as huge disasters or disasters in the making have seemed to be less disastrous and the word you used, apocalyptic, than were for, forecast.
1: For sure, I mean, look, people did die in the protests after the Jerusalem move. Uh, there were attacks after Soleimani was killed, and Iran has inched closer to a nuclear weapon, to obtaining the fuel that they need to get a nuclear weapon uh, since, the Iran, since the Iran deal was left.
0: Yeah. So I'm not saying, the but situation- there's a question: as to whose fault is that? The fact that they have uh, monies that they weren't that weren't available to them, or the fact that the U.S. withdrew? But sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. No,
1: that, that's completely fair. That's completely fair. Oh, my, my only, I'm, we're actually in agreement. It was not, not as apocalyptic uh, as the sort of Trump detractors said at the time. It was a smart policy in the end. We, you know, history will tell. Uh, but mm-hmm. I but I guess it stays, yes. You know, I, I don't know what's in Putin's heart. I don't know what's in Hamas's heart. I don't know what else. So is it possible Hamas did not attack Israel uh, and and Russia did not escalate its invasion of Ukraine because they were worried what Trump might do? Maybe. That's very possible. I'm not denying that at all. I haven't seen any evidence for that. Doesn't mean it's not true. But we do know um, that, you know, Putin did not decide to withdraw, uh, troops from Ukraine during the Trump years. And we know that even though Trump stood firmly, uh, with Israel throughout that whole period, that situation, that conflict between Israelis and Palestinians did not get any better. Um, although that Abraham, Accords, I think is a great diplomatic accomplishment, but the, it's the, its core weakness was there is still this issue to be solved about the Israeli Palestinians, which we're now seeing come to roost, of course, not only with the war, but as the Biden administration tries to make some sort of Israel-Saudi deal uh, in order to somehow get the two-state solution back on track.
0: Yeah. How much humility is there within the Biden foreign policy apparatus? Do they think, you know, the most we could do is nudge things along a little bit whereas we could truly disastrously screw things up? Or do they think, you know, we're the United States, the most powerful country in the history of the world, we could really reshape the planet if we put our mind, treasure, and effort into it?
1: I think when it comes to non-conflicts, they believe they can actually be transformational. Like when, you know, the, the COP deal to get, you know, no, we're going to move beyond fossil fuels, the Inflation Reduction Act, we're going to invest in green technologies. Uh, the fact that we can work with allies to strengthen relations, we can uh, get South Korea and Japan in a room and have them actually be friendly or at least friends. Uh, We can get the world to unite against Chinese telecommunications companies and social media accounts. We can uh, weaken Chinese trade and the Chinese economy and improve our trade relations with other nations. Like all of that, they feel is pretty transformational and pretty strong. When it comes to things like conflict, They feel that America has a role, but cannot be determinative. So take Israel Hamas, right? There are people on the left who say ceasefire now. And there are people on the right who go, let Israel kind of do what it wants. And I know there's a lot of space in between, but those are sort of the extreme polls. And team Biden would kind of say to both of them, like, we're working on it. (laughs) Yeah, You know, we're, we're working to meet you guys in the middle, but that takes time. There's, this notion that somehow if the U.S. accepted a ceasefire or just said, Israel, do what you feel, that this thing would be over pretty soon, they feel is wrong. And that, only, that the U.S. only has really limited influence in those kinds of situations. But in other aspects, they feel that they have a, a very strong transformational plan. And I will tell you, they are extremely thin-skinned at any sense of criticism about how they conduct any bits of their policy. As, as someone who has to contact the NSC press corps every day, Um, I can tell you that even the hint of, you know, one of one of their aides thoughts was not brilliant or anything like that leads them to, to retaliate or retaliates too strong, but respond in a way that's like, how are you stupid? Do you not get what we're doing here?
0: Alexander Ward is national security reporter and anchor of Politico's National Security Daily newsletter, an essential newsletter in the space. His new book is The Internationalists, The Fight to Restore American Foreign Policy After Trump. Alexander, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. And now the spiel, you know me as an expert on a little bit of politics, maybe some policy like crime stats, of course, vexillology trends. But what I'm really adept at is explaining in detail what's funny and why. Why people find some things funny and other things unfunny. It is a great skill and people love it. Now, as far as why people find things funny, There's lots of theories on that. I subscribe to the benign violation theory, but also the theory of universal ticklishness that maintains that jokes about goats, ducks, bears, and monkeys are usually funny, whereas jokes about lions, rats, and Episcopalians are for some reason not. What about jokes about armadillos usually trying too hard? That's the what's funny part. Now I'm here to tell you what's not funny, and that is pretty reliable. Something is not funny when the teller of the funny thing has been determined to be bad, a bad person. Bad people aren't funny and funny people aren't bad. On Saturday Night Live, Shane Gillis, one of the most successful and acclaimed comics working today, did his monologue and he did not kill. Gage the audience's reaction to this, his least successful joke.
1: Talk about my family, I'll tell you this, I don't know if you guys, uh, if you can tell by looking at me, but I do have family members with Down syndrome.
0: <laughs> it almost got me. I, I dodged it, but it nicked me. It nicked me. <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> it was. Some laughs there, and to be fair, it was a setup for later jokes. Here was the biggest laugh he got during his monologue. Some of the later sketches did better than that. So. This biggest laugh was about his general lack of laughs. Look, I don't have any material that can be on TV, all right? (laughs) I'm trying my best. Also, this place is extremely well lit. I can see everyone
1: not enjoying it. (laughs) This is, uh, you know, just the most nervous I've ever been. Don't clap now. Shut up.
0: (laughs) Gillis was hired about five years ago for about 24 hours to be an SNL cast member. That offer was rescinded when podcast appearances in which he made fun of Asian accents and speech surfaced. This branded Gillis to some as a bad person, among them critics like Eric Deggins of NPR, who under a headline asserting that Gillis bombed, made the case that Gillis was a bigot. The Daily Beast also asserted that Gillis bombed, and they said his monologue was met by quote, deafening silence. You heard the least well received joke. That was not silence. I have seen comedians bomb. That is not bombing. I have seen comedians do poorly on network TV. That also is not actually doing poorly. I could. Pull many clips of many network TV appearances where the comedian got fewer laughs. This is to address those who say, well, set against the backdrop of everyone geeked up to be there and excited for Shane Gillis. This is based on a curve bombing. It really wasn't. I've also seen Shane Gillis live crush in pretty small clubs, maybe 150 to 200 seats, where some patrons knew who he was, but most did not. Comedy, or in general, the ability to elicit laughs, is very meritocratic. Gillis thrives in that meritocracy. 90% of comedy club patrons, even those who buy tickets not knowing who will be on the bill, find Shane Gillis to be funny. The 10% that don't. Many of them write for modestly trafficked web outlets. But this was not Gillis' best set. This wasn't even a good one by his standards, and he knew it. You hear it in the joke he told about how poorly his jokes were going over. And at the end of the set, before cameras pulled away, he gave the eh, mezza mezza hand waiver. I think this was probably to a friend or maybe a manager sitting right near the camera. This, I believe, this, his general acknowledgement that it wasn't doing well, and his so-so hand signal afterwards, this contributed much more than anything else to the perception that his routine was met with silence. Also, we should say, this perception, I don't know if it was motivated reasoning, but it was, in fact, an honest perception. Studies show that if you have a vested interest in the outcome, you literally perceive things to be different a very famous study of a dartmouth versus yale football game in the in the 50s showed that depending on which team you were rooting for you really saw the referee as screwing up or making good calls or screwing up for the other side so that's the perception part but the fact that we keyed on gillis himself acknowledging that he wasn't doing good that plays into the fact that we are highly mimetic animals. Luke Burgess wrote a great book about mimesis. We get cues from others, we copy others. It's a driving force in human behavior. As much as we know that a laugh track is not only phony but manipulative, it still works, it generally works. Therefore, I believe that when a comic makes jokes about bombing, In real life, it often does have the effect of winning over the crowd because they all feel like they're in it with you. But when you're watching from afar, it solidifies in the minds of the home audience that the person really is bombing. And cutaways to unhappy audience members in the room are powerful indicators of this, subconsciously even. This is especially true to an audience member at home predisposed to dislike the content. They think that content was terrible. Years ago, 2013 in fact, Seth MacFarlane hosted the Oscars. And in the style of his show Family Guy, or his show Ted, the dirty teddy bear Ted, not the middle brow social science speech-making Ted, McFarland sang a very rude song. We saw your boobs. We saw your boobs. In the movie that we saw, we saw your boobs. Meryl Streep, we saw your boobs in Silkwood. Naomi Watson, Mulholland Drive. The song was juvenile. It was certainly offensive. I'm not going to claim it was inoffensive. I'm not going to claim it made some exalted point. I'm sure McFarlane actually wanted to give at least a little offense. He gave a lot. The New Yorker's headline was Seth McFarlane and the Oscars Hostile, Ugly, Sexist Night. Man oh man, was this song hated. I have a theory to explain the excoriation. It wasn't only the content, it was the cutaway. During the song, Charlize Theron and Naomi Watts were picked up on camera scowling, aggressively staring daggers or looking away at McFarlane as he sang. This was the mimetic indication that many viewers keyed on, even if they didn't know it. But the looks were actually part of a bit. They were pre-recorded. But the takeaway was... To identify with the wounded, because that's what these famous actresses who are skilled at getting us to identify with and sympathize with them, that's what they signaled us to feel. In this year's Golden Globes, Joe Coy hosted, and not very well, here's one joke. It isn't so bad, though he does swallow some of the words. Big difference between the Golden Globes and the NFL. On the Golden Globes, we have fewer camera shots of Taylor Swift. I swear,
1: there's just more to go to here.
0: The joke, I'll explain it, and people love this. It makes things funnier when I do this as an expert. But the joke is that Taylor Swift was right there at the Golden Globes because she was nominated. She was supposed to be there. It was sort of a professional capacity for her. But when she goes to an NFL game because her boyfriend Travis Kelsey is playing, the NFL just milks her presence for their own content. It's really a joke on the NFL, not on Taylor Swift. That's all fine. It's not the greatest joke. It's certainly not offensive. But what happened after... Coy sputtered out the joke was that the camera cut to Swift, and Swift was not amused. This buried Coy. There is no coming back from the disapproval of the world's biggest celebrity. And this is no ancillary consideration. Award shows are especially attuned to the power of mimesis when it comes to evaluating hosts. The MC at this year's Grammys was Trevor Noah. He was affable, complimentary, and I don't think terribly concerned with actually eliciting laughter.
1: Doja Cat is here. Doja's in the house. If you haven't listened to her album, you are wasting your ears. One of the best pieces of work that has ever been put out. Doja Cat put out a song, Paint the Town Red." It is a banger about how she doesn't care what anybody thinks about her. Oh, really, Doja? Oh, really? Well, guess what? We think you're pretty great.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's right. I said what I said. Yeah, that's right. This is something of the future of entertainment, consensus entertainment, the celebrity industrial complex, plus the human need to turn to the left and right to see what others think, combined with the immediacy of pushback and feedback online. It's all conspired to supply us with supplicants as jesters. At least these days we have actual Oscar hosts. I like my entertainment award shows to actually attempt some degree of entertainment. Now I assume the producers of these types of shows aren't as immediately knee-jerk as the reviewers online. After all, the Grammys ratings rose 34%, thanks to, I think, some great performances like Luke Combs and Tracy Chapman singing Fast Car. The Golden Globes were up by 50%. There is no word on Shane Gillis's iteration of SNL just yet. A little nudge up or down in the ratings is not a referendum on the overall phenomenon I should emphasize. Laughter might be an involuntary response, but it is influenced by some extremely predictable and innate human predispositions. And that's it for today's show. When Corey Warra just producer, laughs, the whole world laughs with him. When Joel Patterson, the senior producer, is quaint, all the quaint mallards, mallard, along with that man, Michelle Pasca is chief credit card liaison for Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's Advertise Cast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com/slash/the-gist. Do Peru, Peru, do Peru, and thanks for listening.